2: Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union, our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're going to be talking about the 1963 Toho special effects bonanza Atragon, directed by Ishiro Honda, who was probably most famous for making the original 1954 Godzilla, but who did a a bunch of other things. I mean, made dramatic movies as well, but Mm -hmm. made uh, some of the kaiju classics like Mothra and, and things like that, but also some of the weirder ones I was seeing in the the film list it looks like Honda did uh, like matango the, yep. the the movie about the the mushroom island
1: yeah the, you know, the mushroom people in it yeah yeah i mean we'll get into him in a little bit more in a bit but I mean, he he is without a doubt kaiju royalty like, like it, it, it's not to say that that kaiju movies would not have existed without uh, ishiro honda they might have but they it wouldn't have been the same with the atragon
0: here I would say I went in thinking I was going to get a straight kaiju movie, but actually this turned out to be something very different than what I expected. It's uh, I would say primarily a morality tale about the dangers of nationalism and the virtues of cooperation in the face of great obstacles. And there is a there is a strange beast in it. There is a dragon monster featured toward the end of the film uh, but I'd say the real special effects spectacle centerpiece here is the submarine. This is also a movie about
1: how submarines can fly. yes, yes, this is more of a model submarine movie than a rubber monster movie in the end and and yeah i too was 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 surprised because the the trailers and the promotional images for this film they really sell the fantasy elements of it you think you're going to get more of a you know sort of a you know a pulp era flash gordon-esque clashing of uh, of human civilization and some sort of fantastic hidden civilization that just also happens to be humans in you know different outfits uh but yeah there's this this deeper message they were going for here Yeah, this was interesting. So I was reading
0: a write-up about this in a book called uh, American International Pictures, a Comprehensive Filmography. Now, this was a Toho Studios movie uh, when it was made in Japan, but it was released by AIP internationally, or at least in the United States. Uh, This is a book by uh, Rob Craig. And one of the things he points out about the film, the, the villainous entity in the film, the Moo Empire, is that it's an example of an anachronistic motif that was common during the golden age of Pulp Fiction, the so-called Lost Empire. You know, there's like a, a nation of people which secretly still exist, unknown to anyone outside of it. And usually this empire combines the aesthetics of some kind of pre-industrial society with futuristic technological superiority. So they've, you know, they're like ancient Egypt with ray guns or something.
1: Yeah, this is a a whole idea of like lost continents and so forth that you see, of course, it's part of a, a whole occult movement uh, back in the day, and, and sort of a you know pseudo—not pseudo, but um, I guess a pre-conspiracy theory. We would call it conspiracy theory thinking today, I guess. Uh, a turn in uh, in the culture, but but also, of course, it leaked into various uh, fictions. So you see it. You see it in uh, in both pulp science fiction and pulp fantasy uh, of the old days, you know, like uh, various like Robert E. Howard and Clark Ashton Smith tales. They often concern things that happened on some continent that doesn't exist anymore. So sort of, you know, a forgotten Iron Age or a forgotten, um, uh, you know, history in which these fantastic tales could happen. And then also, uh, you know, you can... You can cast about and find numerous examples of uh, undersea kingdom style uh, adventure shows from back in the day.
0: But coming back to the idea of this movie as a moral melodrama, I, I would say a lot of kaiju movies have a clearly identifiable moral. It's usually not super complex. It, you mm-hmm. know, it's something kind of simple like war is bad and should be avoided, or uh, you know, we should not pollute and damage the planet Earth. But despite the simplicity of of these themes, I'd say for me, somehow the moral of a Kaiju movie usually comes through with a kind of weird sense of integrity, despite the fact that it it is riding into your brain on the vehicle of two radioactive lizards suplexing each other. (laughs) So the central conflict in this uh, movie is that the Earth is threatened by a force called the Mu Empire. It is a sort of evil Atlantis at the bottom of the Pacific. It's ruled by an empress with red hair who who wants to subjugate and destroy everyone. And the, uh, the, the empress will not be satisfied until all of the landlubbers on the planet are either killed or kneeling before her. And over the course of the film, we find out that there's really only one weapon capable of standing against the superior technology and the and arguably the magic of the Mu Empire. And it is a giant submarine which can fly in the air, drill through rock, and shoot freeze rays. But that submarine belongs to a Japanese naval commander for whom World War II basically never ended. So the the war is over, but he... Uh, goes into hiding after the war and continues to work on this super weapon, which he wants to use to restore the Japanese empire to its place of glory. And when he's presented with the situation in the movie, he refuses to join in common cause with the other nations of the world against the Mu empire, because he's only interested in fighting for the glory of the Japanese empire specifically. Or uh, in the, I'm sure it wasn't saying this in the original, in the dub that I watched, uh, one line called it the imperial empire of Japan, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, the the moral arc of the film is his discovery that he must put aside his his sense of nationalistic honor and superiority, and and stand up for the good of humankind as a whole. And I think this was a a common theme in Japanese films at the time that would sort of promote the idea of international cooperation and. And be critical of the idea of nationalism or imperialism, but it, uh, it 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 seems to fit also very well with Ishiro Honda's particular sensibilities.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a you know it's a it's a monster movie. It's a more like I said, more of a submarine movie, uh, but it is a, it is a fantasy adventure. Uh, but you got to fill up the, the rest of the film with something, and it's not just um, just popcorn in there. Yeah, it's a film that's that's trying to say something. Uh, while also entertaining us with toy submarines and rubber monsters. Now, uh, a note on the title. Uh, The Japanese title for the film literally translates to The Undersea Warship, but Toho uh, went with uh, Atragon for the international title, presumably because it combines the English words atomic and dragon. I guess the warship is the titular atomic dragon here though i guess you could also make a case for maybe maybe the actual dragon is an atomic dragon i don't know it's supposed to be pretty powerful
0: i love these toho portmanteaus you, you remember the uh, story about the origin of the word godzilla that was uh from combining the words for gorilla and whale oh yeah that's right <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's the gorilla whale he's gorilla not really whale. either of those things no no <laughs> now the uh yeah the the trailer for this is uh is pretty flashy and impressive. Uh, it's, it's hard to, once you start seeing the, looking at the posters for this film, once you start looking at the, the trailer footage, it's hard to not be pulled into it. It's like a whirlpool. That's how we wound up here, looking around for some sort of kaiju or kaiju adjacent film, uh, to watch. And, um, the uh, uh, for, uh, for the elevator pitch, you can't get much better than than what is actually featured on uh, at least some of the, the English-language posters. It is, see the juggernaut of destruction, challenge the incredible empire beneath the sea. <laughs> Which is accurate. That's, that's kind of what – that's basically what you see in the film, but with a little more padding than that.
0: Well, yeah. Well, one thing I will also say about this movie is it takes a long time to get to the Moo Empire. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of – this movie has a surprising amount of plot. Like there's a ton of uh, intrigue, people sort of chasing each other around. There's a lot of characters uh, yeah. that spends the first 20 minutes introducing all these different characters and essentially just positioning them all on the chessboard to eventually move them to the Island where the, the Japanese Naval commander Jinguchi is uh, working on his, his super weapon submarine.
1: Yeah. It's, it's an interestingly kind of complex plot, in a way, uh, the way it's constructed here, and the way it differs from from your pure kaiju film. It does make me wonder if something like you could have like a Shin Etragon movie take place to uh, you know be produced today, where they they take this this basic concept just ultra seriously.
0: Yeah so we see all the meetings and the mm-hmm. rescheduling of the meetings and the moving the meetings to a different location and
1: yeah <laughs> I, I yeah I, my mind turns back to, to shin godzilla i guess anytime i watch a, a film that involves you know kaiju uh, even in the slightest and i guess one of the great things about shin godzilla is it's kind of a um, you know the fantasy there is is both the monsters but also it kind of presents this optimistic view in which modern governments work in which they they are, like all the things they are doing or act can can actually uh, be pushed in a beneficial direction and solve big problems like monsters attacking the you know the the a country or other things like um, you know some of the wicked problems in the world or climate change etc it's funny just the other day i was re-watching one of the
0: original trailers for shin godzilla that i think is just a great trailer it doesn't reveal too much about the movie it's just a a very well chosen edit of of short Sort of scenes of of characters again going to meetings and stuff, but it's got this soundtrack set to it, this uh, escalating sort of uh, uh, string riff that's recorded on almost what sounds like an old timey telephone line or something. Uh, And it it creates this wonderful uh, sense of impending doom. It's really good.
1: All right. Well, on that note, let's go ahead and hear the trailer audio for the English trailer for Petrica.
3: Petragon. The most devastating device the mind of man has yet created. It travels on land and in the sea. It tunnels through the earth. Its crew, all supermen with super weapons, can freeze their enemies and enslave them. Fire and fear are the gods of terror on the hidden continent. No thing, no man, no adventure can match the nine amazing wonders of Atregon, nor the massive powers of its allegoric destroyer. You will see wonders that challenge the imagination. See flying saucers, you will know terror that panics the world. Admiral Kusumi, I am agent number 23 of the Mu Empire. This earthquake is not accidental.
1: Sounds pretty exciting, right? Oh, yeah. Dragons, submarines, freeze rays, everything you could possibly ask for in a motion picture. So uh, let's talk about some of the people involved. Uh, certainly at the top, we already mentioned Ishiro Honda, uh, who lived uh, 1911 through 1993. Legendary Toho film director. Uh, of course, him 1954's Godzilla, the movie that started it all. He directed 44 pictures in total. Eight of those were Godzilla films, culminating in 1975's Terror of Mecha Godzilla. But yeah, he also directed Rodin, The Mysterians, The Human Vapor, Matango, Frankenstein versus Baragon, The War of the Gargantuans. Those are both films that deal with uh, giant Frankensteins. I was, that I think uh, is grown from a Nazi brain or something. Um, I think uh, I was reading the Michael Weldon summary of Frankenstein versus Baragon, and if I if memory serves... The heart of Frankenstein's monster is, like, sustained or resurrected by Nazi scientists. It gets shipped off to Japan, where a young boy eats it and then transforms into a gigantic Frankenstein. Uh, that's basically the plot of Jason Goes to Hell. Yeah, yeah. And and, and honestly, it's pretty true to Mary Shelley's vision. I, <laughs> I don't think she would disagree with
0: this film at all. Or uh, well, is <laughs> it just there a part where the giant... Frankenstein reads Paradise Lost.
1: Yeah, probably it's they have that's how they try and, um, and defeat it. I'm guessing is yeah. they have to build a gigantic copy of Paradise Lost, give it and literature. roll it out there with tanks <laughs> and try and trick him into reading it,
0: make it realize that it is Satan.
1: Yeah. Uh, let's see uh, other movies. There's a space amoeba um, and, and others. He was a friend of uh, legendary Japanese director Akira Kurosawa, and uh, you see him popping up on some of his. Uh, projects as well uh, for instance he served as i've seen it listed as director counselor but also chief assistant director on kurosawa's 1985 epic uh run. this is the one that is uh basically uh like a samurai uh sort of uh riff on king lear
0: yeah it's a great
1: one yeah
0: has uh, unbelievably staged battle
1: scenes yeah Uh, Honda, his name continues to appear in the credits on Godzilla movies, uh, moving forward, of course. Uh, But also, you see, there are also other homages to him in various Godzilla and Godzilla-adjacent pictures. All right, the screenplay was by Shinichi uh, Sekizawa, who lived 1920 through 1992, a frequent collaborator with Honda and scribe of many Godzilla movies beginning with 1962's King Kong vs. Godzilla. And then this is interesting. this is not a the screenplay was not based on one novel, but kind of took ideas from two different books and mm-hmm. uh, sort of mashed them together and then used that as a space uh, to 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 comment on the things I guess that, that Honda and Sekizawa wanted to comment on. that makes sense yeah I can see this being a mashup yeah and and I think that's something that ultimately works in its favor so uh, the first novel would be this um this novel, um, "The Undersea Warship," by uh, Shunro Oshikawa, who lived 1876 through 1914, Japanese author and journalist who was also a pioneer in Japanese science fiction. Um, I, I don't think his influence was 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 felt outside of Japan, but was was very influential within uh, Japanese. Um, uh you know, pulp writing of the time, science fiction of the time. Uh, he was inspired in large part by the works of Jules Verne. Uh, so of course, he wrote about sci-fi submarines. Uh, but in his book, uh, apparently the the villains are themselves Japanese imperialists who build a a great drill headed submarine. Mm. Now, the second book uh, is one by Shigeru Komatsuzaki. Uh, the novel uh, being The Undersea Kingdom. So Komatsu Zaki worked in the the art departments on this film, as well as uh, Honda's fungal horror film, Matango. And he was a prolific artist in Japanese science fiction, specializing in futuristic vehicles. He did a lot of cover illustrations for model kits, uh, particularly model kits that had some sort of like sci-fi TV show or movie tie-in. And it's a definite style that I think many people will recognize. Like even if you're not familiar with his work, if you look up his name uh, and look at some of these galleries uh, of particularly of these uh, these plastic model kit boxes, uh, you'll you'll recognize this style. Uh, and it's you know it's it's very like like uh, you, know, uh, you know classic sci-fi, a lot of fantastic vehicles with unnecessary drills on them, mm-hmm. that sort of thing.
0: Polished, shiny metal uh, on the surfaces—things that look like flying toasters.
1: Yeah, yeah, flying toasters is a good, a good description. But yeah, he also wrote this novel, Undersea Kingdom, which serves as partial basis for this film, and it concerns an undersea kingdom threat.
0: Okay, so smashing these together, you take what's originally the idea of a a sort of remnant uh, Japanese imperialist who who builds a dangerous uh, superweapon submarine. And that's originally the villain of one novel, but in this, it's you, you take that same character and turn them into a reluctant hero, or somebody who starts as uncooperative with the heroes, but then comes around. Yeah. And then you combine this with the actual villain being this uh, golden era of pulp uh, fiction kind of idea of a lost empire, except it's under the sea, and they have a dragon at their command, and they have all kinds of technology. Yes. Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions
2: apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every
4: journey. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, StraightForward. Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at hypergig for details.
1: Now, normally we would talk mostly about uh, some human actors uh, in this film, but like I say, most of them were kaiju movie regulars, and we'll mention a few of them when we get into the plot. Uh, but really, the, the real stars of this film are, uh, are the submarine and then also the dragon that the submarine battles. Um, so I guess starting with the, uh, the submarine, uh, the submarine is called the Gotengu uh, or Gotengo, Uh, which apparently literally means roaring heavens, which is a nice name for a submarine. Uh, Like you said, it is the ultimate submarine warship, and it is so ultimate that it not only travels beneath the sea, it can also tunnel through solid stone, it can fly through the air, and it is a spectacular model in a movie that's filled with a lot of really solid model work. Um, And I think it it shouldn't be a surprise at all that this apparently sold a a number of uh, Gotengo model kits over the years. Mm. so I included a picture from uh, from one of these model kit boxes. I do very much love
0: the look of the design, though I have some practical concerns about this submarine I can raise later.
1: <laughs> now uh, the the Gotengo here was simply just too good to remain in one motion picture, so it would ultimately ultimately return in. Godzilla Island, a TV show that ran ninety seven through ninety eight, Godzilla Final Wars in two thousand and four, Superfleet, Caesar X, the movie in two thousand five, and Godziban, uh, which apparently is a web show that uh, at least started in twenty nineteen and, and is perhaps still going based on what I could tell on the um uh on the wikizilla dot com website. I don't think I know any of these except Final Wars. Yeah uh and then I, I should also mention that there was um, there were there was also an atragon two part anime series that came much later which of course features the the submarine you can't you can't do a movie about um, the atomic dragon without having the the atomic dragon itself in it uh and speaking of dragons uh that brings us to manda uh, this is the god bioweapon of the of the moo, a great serpentine sea dragon that strongly resembles traditional Japanese depictions of dragons, which uh, is one of the the things that 's in- instantly interesting about this this monster design because you know you see things like godzilla Godzilla just looks kind of like a uh, well i guess a whale and a a gorilla, but more, more or less like a big dinosaur and uh, other creatures that Godzilla battles or Gamma battles. You know, they don't they don't really look like monsters that one is instantly going to necessarily identify with um, with pre kaiju Japanese culture, right? But here's Manda, and Manda basically looks like uh, you know, a traditional depiction of some sort of a serpentine uh, Japanese dragon. Um, and I think that that ultimately works. In its favor, Um, and and I I imagine was quite intentional. Apparently, it was originally some of the early uh, um, um, pre-production art showed Manda as like a big snake, but then they made him a dragon instead. And you think about like what he's supposed to be. He's kind of a manifestation of war and imperialism, certainly for the people of Mu. But Mu is also, again, presented as this dark reflection, a kind of underwater world to mirror uh, this, this, uh, you know, the, the remnants of warlike sentiments in Japanese culture of the 1960s. Uh, so it makes sense that the horrors of the past might be symbolized by a monster that is also draped in history.
0: Yeah, that, that makes sense to me.
1: Now, he's brought to life via, or I could say he, it could be a she, or we, we don't know. Amanda uh, is brought to life via puppetry, Uh, but it's not, you know, so it's not a rubber suit kaiju. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a slightly different beast than say godzilla and so forth but that doesn't stop manda from coming back in other films and so again this list is via uh wikizilla.com manda returns at least as a in a, in a cameo in destroy all monsters in 68 all monsters attack in 69 that's stock footage also comes back as stock footage in terror of mecha godzilla in 75 And then also Godzilla Final Wars in 2004, uh, Godzaban uh, in 2019, and then Godzilla Singular Point, a TV series in 2021. So Manda, still very much part of the Kaiju Toho pantheon.
0: Now, as I mentioned, though, Manda is not a major figure throughout most of the film's runtime. Manda pops up basically right at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that I think makes Manda interesting is that it uh some of it's like big confrontation and fight scene involves underwater puppetry which uh i don't know what the challenges were in shooting that but i found that interesting
1: yeah the, the underwater scenes i think are are are, are brought to life uh, Rather well in this film, you know, through the use of models and puppetry. Uh, And then, uh, I mean, there are scenes also with some uh, aquatic humanoids uh, or frogmen uh, swimming their way through the water. And it's, you know, it's clear that they're, they're not actually filmed underwater. They're just, they're like hanging by wires or something, but it still works. I gotta say, any movie
0: that has long underwater sequences is uh, where where you're actually like out swimming around in the water. Mm -hmm. I don't mean like in the interior of a submarine or something that's got to fight uphill to hold my attention. I'm not quite sure why, but I think about a lot of movies that have, diving scenes. And I just think a lot of those scenes, I, I tend to want to doze off like Thunderball, uh, you <laughs> yeah. know, the James Bond movie, Thunderball has got like 20 minutes of just diving underwater, fighting between divers with masks and stuff. And, uh, and it's, it's nearly impossible for me to pay attention throughout that entire sequence.
1: Yeah. And you often have like a prolonged uh, sequence on deck, putting the swim, uh, the swim gear on, putting on yeah. the wetsuit. Uh <laughs> So that kind of drags it out as well. Weirdly, I would say the same is
0: true for underwater levels in video games. People almost never yep. like those. Hmm. You ever heard people complain about those? I feel like that's a common sentiment. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, it's a water level.
1: Huh. Well, yeah, I I'd never really thought about that. I mean, sometimes it's great. I mean, like the the video game Soma that we've talked about before. Like, the- Oh,
0: that is great. But I feel like that's different because that's a sort of atmospheric horror thing uh, instead of something where... You're just waiting for the pace of, of the action to pick up. Yeah. A lot of times watching an underwater scene in a movie feels like watching an extended slow motion sequence, you know? Yeah.
1: Well, it's often a great place to dump some stock footage as well if yeah. <laughs> you need to pad out the picture. But like I said, I, I was I was okay with the
0: uh, the underwater stuff in this one.
1: Uh, real quick um, note on the music here the music was by Akira uh, Ifakubi, who lived 1914 through 2006. Uh, Ifukube was a Japanese classical composer who scored such films as the original Godzilla, Rodin, uh, Demaijin, and 1968's The Snow Woman, which is a horror film. Uh, so he, he did quite a bit, but certainly this is the name that is also attached to that iconic Godzilla music. Mm. All right, well, shall we leap right into the action of the plot, much like this movie leaps right into the action of the plot? Yeah, it
0: does. I wonder if this was an artifact of the version we watched. Uh, so I mm-hmm. watched the one that was on Amazon Prime. Did did you?
1: I did as well, yeah. Okay.
0: Um, well, a couple things about that. One thing is that any, any lines, I quote, are a product of that particular English dub. I don't know if there are other dubs or how well they capture the spirit of the original, but there was some very weird and funny dialogue. And I mm-hmm. suspect that a lot of that has to do with the translation.
1: Yeah. In, in, in general, as is often the case, we can give uh, the film, the benefit of the doubt regarding the, the original dialogue in the motion picture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but
0: so the version we watched also, it just opens just jumps right in. Like
1: mm-hmm.
0: you see a car driving through streets at night, there are tires screeching as it whips around corners. It's going into tunnels. And then we see inside the car, there is a strange driver in sunglasses and it's nighttime but he's wearing sunglasses and a passenger riding in the back seat and then the guy in the back seat suddenly looks around as if he is as confused as the audience about what's <laughs> happening right now and he goes, "Hey, what's up? Where are we going?" <laughs> and uh and he tries to like grab the driver but it's it's almost as if the driver is hot or something like he pulls his hand away. He's like, mm-hmm. "Ah!" And uh, then sort of wilts into the back seat. And then next, we immediately cut to an unrelated scene where there are two goofball photographers and a model. Uh, The model is wearing a leopard print bikini, and they're doing a photo shoot. But they're doing it at, like, a deserted shipyard at night. Yeah, yeah, that that does not seem. Yeah, okay, so it wasn't just me. It's like, it would, in fact not be normal to stage a a, uh, a swimsuit photo shoot
1: at an empty concrete pier in the dark. I mean, not without significant lighting, right? I mean, <laughs> which I don't think these guys had.
0: Is this like Miss Shipyards
1: 1963? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's for the calendar.
0: Uh, so the two photographers will become major characters in the movie. They are named uh, Susumu and Yoshido. And the swimsuit model is played by an actress named uh, Akimi Kita. And if I understand correctly, I think marketing for the American release of this movie may have possibly implied that the bikini lady is a main character of the movie. She is not. I think she's only in this one scene for like 30 seconds.
1: Yeah, I looked Akita up and she was born in 1940 and actually has 58 credits on IMDb. Looks like a lot of it is, um, you know, it looks like she was in various crime thrillers of the day. Yeah. The stylish kind, you know, where there's some dude with black sunglasses in it.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of sunglasses in this movie. Did you, did you notice how all the people who we find out are later
1: agents of the Mu Empire are wearing sunglasses? Well, that makes sense. They, they're they going to need them to filter out the you know, the, the, the light of the sun.
0: Uh, but anyway, so back to this scene. This scene is a lot. Like, this movie generally is trying to cram a lot into a little bit of runtime, but that's especially true in the first two minutes. So you got the guy in the car being driven by the sunglasses creep. He starts to panic. Then you have the swimsuit photo shoot down at the docks and that's going on. And you have the model. She's like sneezing, I think because it's cold. Um, and then the photo shoot is interrupted when the model sees a humanoid figure in a weird outfit emerging from the ocean, with steam pouring off of it, it looks like it's wearing a wetsuit covered in crumpled aluminum foil.
1: Yeah, and it kind of it kind of walks that nice line where you're not able to tell: is this a wetsuit that is dressed up to look like a monster, or is this supposed to be an alien wetsuit? You're not sure exactly what you're looking at. Uh, yeah, yeah. Given the the expectations for a film like this.
0: But so she starts screaming in terror and then the goofier of the two photographers is like, he says, come on, this isn't a funeral. (laughs) Implying that what you normally do at a funeral is scream. Yeah, that's got, that's got to be a mistranslation. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then they, they, and then they all see the creature. The photographers do too. They start screaming. They take pictures. The flash from the camera seems to repel the creature back into the water uh, and then immediately the car from earlier with the com- confused passenger in the back, it just drives off the end of the pier into the water. And
1: then there's steam bubbling out everywhere. Then the credits. Yeah. yeah. This It, it really captures this fee- the feeling you have when you decide to get popcorn despite the fact that you're running a little bit late. Yeah. And then when you get into the, into the theater itself, the movie's already up and running and you have no idea what's happening. Uh, yeah. That's how it feels if you're on time for the beginning of this film.
0: But this opening sequence sets up a mystery in which the two photographers will be players. What actually happened? What was the steamy man? Why did a car drive into the ocean? Who was in it? The story moves on with the car being retrieved from the water with a big winch, and the photographers are being interviewed by the police. And they say, uh, they say, he, he came up. And uh, I guess they're talking about the guy in the, the frogman or the, the guy in the, the wetsuit. He, they say, he came up. He was steaming. He was steaming. And then there's a police detective there talking to them. And he's like, you expect me to believe that? And the guy says, you have to. The camera got a clear picture of him. The cop says, oh, I know you guys in your trick photography. And then the photographer says, oh, no, not this time. So, like, have they interacted before? I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> Again, I think maybe something's being lost in translation here. But uh, they do make a, a connection with what's happening. They say that the guy who was supposed to be driving the stolen car was choked unconscious. And, and so somebody else posed as him to drive this guy. And the, the driver says, when he choked me, his hands were very hot. So like, ah, okay. That seems to connect with the uh, the steamy guy coming out of the water. But Rob, I have a question. Now that we have both seen the whole movie in its entirety, did it ever resolve why the agents of the Moo empire are hot?
1: Uh, I don't think they did this feels like something that maybe was cut, or maybe was it was was explored more thoroughly in one of the source novels? Um, so uh, I don't know. I guess they, for some reason, their bodies need to run at a higher temperature. They're like cats.
0: I guess. Uh, yeah, I don't know. So when they're in the water, they're steamy. If they touch you, they they burn you. It's yeah, I, I don't know. So if they did explain that, it, it went past me. But from here, right after the uh, interview with the police that was just happening, the photographers look up and they see a woman disembarking from a ship. This is going to be another major character. This is Makoto, played by Yoko Fujiyama. And in one of many, many weird coincidences that drives the plot of this movie – uh she will become a major player because she is the daughter of the lost naval commander Jinguji, who is the the guy we were talking about at the beginning, who is the uh you know the the uh the the guy who never gave up on World War II. But uh here she enters the action just because the two photographers happen to see her coming off of a boat and they both do the the cartoon wolf eyes popping out thing, or they're they're like awoo, Aw, and Susumu is like, hey, look at that random woman we've never met. She's the perfect model. We must photo her. So they like run after her, yelling. She's clearly not interested. These guys should take a hint, but they do not. And so she gets in a car and speeds away, and the dude just takes pictures
1: of the car. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny too because I mean, obviously Makoto is is beautiful, and uh, the, the actor playing Makoto. Is, 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 very beautiful, but are they so beautiful that you're just going to run after the car taking pictures of the, yeah. the, the, back of the vehicle? I don't know.
0: You got a great one of the back of her head through the windshield. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And later there's a scene where they're like, uh, they're developing photos in their dark room. And, uh, Susumu is, is telling Yoshida, he's like, you have to find this woman. Uh, she's perfect. You know, I, I guess he's, he's just, he sees her once and he's smitten. Um, And so he gives this order to Yoshido, but Yoshido's like, hey, Tokyo has 10 million people. At least half of them are women. How am I supposed (laughs) to find her? (laughs) I love that he crunches the numbers. (laughs) Uh, But of course, they decide they're going to track her down using the license plate number on the car, which he he caught in those photos. Ah, yes. By the way, remember how this is going to be a movie about an undersea empire that threatens humankind with global war?
1: Yes, about a juggernaut battling Uh, an undersea kingdom. Yep. But there's a lot in the
0: beginning about just chasing this lady around. Yeah.
1: Oh, but then right after this, there's a
0: funny thing where their secretary in their office like buzzes on the intercom and says, "Uh, excuse me, have you done something wrong? There's a policeman here. And so the police are here to inform the photographers that another man has been kidnapped and taken to the ocean. And just like the previous guy who got kidnapped, he was a civil engineer and an expert in geologic faults. So hmm it seems like uh these people getting uh, driven into the ocean in cars are like they they've got similar expertise engineers who know about earthquakes and and seismic activity.
1: So it's got to be those
0: steamy men. That's right. In fact, they uh yeah, they're talking to the police and one of the, uh, Susumu I think is like was there a vapor man again? And the detective says according to witnesses, he was very steamy. <laughs>
2: Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
4: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills.
0: Okay, and then it's on to introducing more characters. Again, I as I said this movie has a lot of characters. So we follow Makoto to her place of work. You know, she she's the beautiful woman who the photographers had to find. And uh so she works as an assistant to the retired rear admiral Kusumi played by Ken Yuhara. and in Kusumi's office, Makoto informs him that there is a visitor asking to see him. It is a journalist named Mr. Umino or Mr. Uh, I think his name was translated in, in different ways, but in the dub, they were, I think they were calling him Umino, but they say he's a journalist and he works for true story magazine. This guy is my favorite. I love Umino. I love his whole vibe so he's played by an actor named Kinji Sahara, and in this movie, he's a big guy wearing this big tan overcoat along with what looks like a red velvet plaid flat hat and a red scarf, and he's always wearing sunglasses, even indoors, and he is sporting a wicked chinstrap beard. He looks like a, a Mennonite beat poet. He and, does. Uh, yeah and this guy uh this guy he was actually present in an earlier scene the scene at the docks where they're fishing the car he was just hanging around kind of leaning over people's shoulders acting weird
1: Yeah yeah uh, this actor by the way Kenji Sahara born 1935 and I still I think he's still or, or I think he's still around um but yeah not, not only is the visual presentation of this character great but I feel like he has, also has the most outrageous English dub uh, he has yes. this wonderful, wonderfully gruff voice. So every time he says something, uh, he has your complete attention. He, yeah, everything is like, oh, you're not in, eh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is, I feel like that is a staple English dub voice of uh, Japanese films. Uh, because I, I know I've heard, if not the same voice uh, actor, I've heard somebody doing essentially that same voice for certain characters. Probably in spaghetti westerns as well. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, but anyway, uh, I I love Umino. Kenji Sahara is great in this role. I love his outfit. I love his energy. He's just he he's just powerful. Uh, so the um though, so he's not in the room yet. Like uh, Makoto comes in and and says to Kasumi, um, you know, this journalist wants to see you and he's like, "Well, do you know what he wants?" And she says, "Yes, he wants to talk to you about some naval mystery during the war." And Kasumi says, naval mystery. Tell him I'm not in. But uh, Umino is already in the room. And he's like, oh, so you're not in, huh? <laughs> and uh, and then, so was, I was trying to understand the dubbing. He says, oh, so you're not in, huh? And then he says, I am in. And I couldn't tell if that was Kasumi saying it or if that was Umino saying it. But either way, it was funny.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, you're not in, huh? Well, I am in. <laughs> uh, but anyway, once they're alone. The journalist reveals that he knows about some secret prototype submarine that is connected to Kasumi's past. And honestly, I I did not care very much about all of the like different submarine model intrigue, where the different the the A four hundred one or the A four hundred two or the A four hundred three. So I, I do not really plan on trying to keep all of that stuff straight. I will just say the the weird journalist claims to have knowledge of submarine doings. And Kasumi, uh, he wants Kasumi to tell him about more submarine doings, and Kasumi will not.
1: Yeah, yeah, for the most part, we just want to see the submarines at this point. Like, you keep yeah. talking about submarines. Let's just see them. Let's see them in action.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, but then the, the journalist reveals something else. He says that the naval commander, Jinguji, who is presumed to have died in the war, is actually still alive somewhere in hiding. And it turns out also, this is the scene where we find out. That Jinguji is Makoto's father, so she has believed him dead this whole time. And uh, Kasumi, Rear Admiral Kasumi here, the retired admiral, was Jinguji's friend, and he swore to take care of uh, Makoto, to, to bring her up. And Kasumi does not accept the journalist's proposition that Jinguji is still alive, and he gives a speech. He says, like, your father was a great naval officer and a genius when it came to marine engineering. On the very night he left us, he came to me and asked me to take care of you. He wanted you to have a good life. And then she says, if he wanted me to have a good life, why did he go away and leave me? And then the, the retired admiral says, he had to do his duty to his country. That's patriotism. You young people don't seem to understand the word, but it meant a lot to us. Mm. And I thought, that this is a good scene.
1: Yeah, yeah, because you know, we're, we're, we're establishing uh, this, uh, this tension between these two characters, but also uh, one of the underlying uh, cultural tensions that's explored in the, in the picture.
0: Right. Meanwhile, the, we cut back to the two photographers who are still just being frivolous perverts. <laughs> uh, they're trying to track down Makoto to see if she will model for them. And in doing so, they get into a car chase where they inadvertently help foil a plot to kidnap Makoto and Kasumi and take them beneath the ocean. Uh, so if this, I'll try to make sense of this whole thing. So, uh, Kasumi and Makoto are riding along in a car. They're being driven somewhere. And they start talking about how a strange man has been following Makoto around lately. But she's not talking about the the, uh, the magazine perverts. She's talking about a different guy who also keeps popping up. Uh, but then, uh-oh, right in the middle of this, we see that the driver of their car is dressed like the driver of the car in the opening of the movie, the guy with the sunglasses. Uh, and uh, But this guy also, he's not just wearing sunglasses, he's wearing a captain's hat, like the skipper. <laughs>
1: I, uh, I wonder if it's just like, you know, the, the Moo agents as they're sent out into the world, they just kind of grab surface human garments off of a rack uh, and guess at how humans actually dress. Like
0: this guy just went into a costume shop and he's like, I'll be a captain today.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's very Yacht Rock. <laughs> so uh, Kasumi tries to protest. He's like, wait, where are we? Where are we going? and And the guy tells them to keep quiet and obey his orders. And then he drives them to the beach. He points a gun at them, and he he gets them, gets them out of the car. Order marches them to the water's edge, and he's like, "All right, we're we're going to go to the Moo Empire." And it like they're standing there at the water with the gun pointed. It really reminded me of the Simpsons episode where uh, where Mr. Burns is uh, pointing the gun at Smithers and telling him to hop into the
1: plane, but it's a model plane he's holding in his hand. Yes, yes, the casino episode. Yeah, a great one. Uh, there are multiple scenes in this film where basically if you get to the edge of the water and you jump in, you're in the empire of Mu. Uh, I, I don't know if it means that like there's supposed to be buildings right there, or if at any given point you can jump into the water and there's probably a Mu submarine, uh, nearby that'll pick you up and take you where you need to go.
0: Yeah. I think the implication is that these people who fall into the water, like drive in in cars or just jump into the waves are picked up by submarines. Yeah, but it but you don't see that happen. So instead, it's just very funny that it's like, okay, get in the water. Then you, then you'll yeah, be in the, yeah. yeah.
1: They're withholding a lot of submarine footage uh, for the at least the first third of this picture, if not the the first half.
0: But then so the two photographers because they were chasing after this woman they run up on this hostage scene and they're like hey what do you think you're doing and the guy in the sunglasses and the captain's hat points a gun at them and says I'm going to take these people to the Empress of the Mu Empire. <laughs> oh okay and that's the first we hear about it in the movie. He says I'm an agent of the Mu Empire. Uh, I'm agent number 23. And then uh, Kasumi, with a gun like pointed into his stomach, says, listen, you must be crazy. The Mu Empire is the legendary country which disappeared 10,000 years ago. And I think they argue about that a little bit. But then the uh, the agent says, uh, I have a special energy, so you can't hurt me. And he demonstrates his power by, like I don't know, like magically heating up a wrench,
1: I think. Oh, yeah. That's that body heat coming into play again.
0: Yeah. You can't physically touch
1: them. You certainly can't punch them because right. they're hot.
0: Yeah, he says, so I have a special energy. You can't hurt me. I'm going to kidnap Kasumi and Makoto and take them to the Mu Empire where they will be enslaved by the Empress. And then there's a scene of of, uh, tense music as you see the masses of the sort of the entourage of the Mu Empire coming toward the beach to, I guess, take them away. And this scene was actually, I I thought, kind of spooky when you see the, the vapor men poking their heads up out of the water. And then there's a submarine rising behind them in the distance.
1: Yeah, this this shot reminded me a lot of what we'd see much later in 1977, Shockwaves, which we talked about on Weird House Cinema. Uh, In in that movie, you had undead Nazis emerging from the the Florida surf uh, in a shot that that looks a lot like this. I don't know if there's actually any connection here or if they're both inspired by something else, but uh, it's a nice visual nonetheless.
0: Anyway— what are we going to do? You know, Agent 23, he's got special energy. Well, despite his special energy, Susumu disarms him. Like, the photographer guy just knocks the gun out of his hand and wrestles him into submission. <laughs> Kasumi grabs the gun and points it at him. And he's like, you're coming with us. Uh, and the, the agent just says, basically, he's like, no, no. And then he jumps into the water. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Instantly picked up by submarine. Yeah.
0: So we regroup back at the police department where the detectives are investigating the physical uh, evidence for, for this whole story, including by looking at the gun. And the one detective is is checking out the gun by pointing it at his face and peering down the <laughs> barrel.
1: Yeah, it does not look safe.
0: And then they uh, – so they're hanging out at the police station and they receive a package in the mail. It is uh, addressed to Admiral Kasumi, care of the Metropolitan Police Department, and it is from the Mu
1: Empire, Agent 23 – Oh, and, and this is where the film really begins to, to kick it into higher gear.
0: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I love this. Uh, but before we get to the uh, contents of the package, we, a guy in a white lab coat comes in. He says, hey, the package might be dangerous. Let me open it. So they're all like, oh, it's a bomb. But then they just stand around looking over his shoulder while he opens it. So like, <laughs> they don't, I don't know. They don't take it to a secure location. Uh, but of course, it's not a bomb. It's a film strip. So then we're treated to a movie within a movie. They they appear they apparently gather all these bigwigs to watch this film strip that has been sent to them by the agent and it is a it, like it is a short film made by the Moo Empire explaining the Moo Empire to these people. It's like here's what we are. We're going to conquer you. And this
1: was one of my favorite parts of the movie it's a moo propaganda film and it, it raises a number of questions like that. Does the moo propaganda department have just like their own cinema uh, squad down there? Have they kidnapped yeah. cinematographers and, and cameramen and brought them down? Have they they have, have there are there Jacques Cousteau's who've gone missing so that they can <laughs> be used uh, for for this function. And then of course I love that you would think if like an underwater imperial nation wants to make itself known to the surface world. Like they'd, they wouldn't just send it to an, uh, a, you know, a random admiral. They'd, like, wouldn't this go to heads of state or something or to the United Nations? No, uh, no. They,
0: <laughs> they want Kasumi like for his eyes. <laughs> well, so what does it say? Well, they say this is the Pacific Ocean. They show a map of the Pacific Ocean. Thank you. And then they say for 12,000 years, the Mu Empire has prospered at the bottom of this ocean. This film will prove our existence to you. Uh, So they go on to claim that uh, throughout ancient history, the Mu empire ruled over the entire world. But however, they say, quote, however, because of a curse, our empire was buried (laughs) beneath the waters of the Pacific that I wish we knew more more about the curse, but um, nevertheless, our ancestors managed to survive by utilizing the heat stored deep in Earth's center and other resources unknown to you. Uh, We have, uh, we have made great progress as you can see. And, well, this narration goes on, they show a bunch of what appears to be futuristic cities in underground caverns, and they have, uh, like, uh, I don't know, rail transport and, and futuristic looking, I don't know, catwalks and stuff, and, and uh, flying cars, of course, and steam coming out of things. It's uh, It's very good. I yeah, like the huge, miniature models.
1: Yeah, huge caverns in the earth filled with glass and steel and spheres and... Also, like, weirdly uh, old-fashioned-looking clock towers, yeah. um, and, uh, and all of it powered by geothermal energy, which, uh, which is a cool sci-fi concept for, for something like this. You know, if you're going to have underground people, yeah, geothermal power makes sense to be their, uh, their energy source.
0: But they also revealed that they have possession of one of those submarines that came up earlier, of the mm-hmm. A-403, a Japanese secret submarine that had been commanded by Jinguji. And the film says that Jinguji uh, was not aboard when they captured it. And he is currently somewhere designing an even more powerful, more advanced submarine in a secret base. And then the film orders Kasumi to locate Jinguji and tell him to stop work on the super sub immediately. Uh, Then the Mu Empire, uh, it says it intends to recover its former domination. And it says the Empress Mu will soon be supreme ruler of the world. And they show like scenes from the throne room inside the palace of Mu and uh, all these adoring citizens bowing before the empress in, in this throne room with big flames with a vaguely ancient Egyptian theme. Yeah, yeah. But I think you could also say maybe uh, stuff that looks sort of like elements of, of ancient Greek or Mesoamerican all kind of mixed together.
1: Yeah, also reminds one of various like the sword and sandal epics, you know, a lot of yeah. a lot of robes going on, dudes standing around with spears. And uh, you know, I feel like this I, I want I want to really I wanna like the, the Moo propaganda agency here, but I feel like they've they really miscalculated things. Like basically they're saying, Hey, there's a guy out there who has a weapon and we're afraid of it. Uh, you need to stop him because we wanna take over the world. Right. And then look at us, behold all of our, our weird mix of of advanced technology, but also um uh, you know, spears and fires, open flames. And uh, yes, we had to steal a submarine. <laughs> so uh, yeah. it seems it seems like they would, something more subtle would have made more sense. Like, couldn't you just like leak the location or the existence of this uh, advanced submarine that you want uh, taken out of the picture? I don't know.
0: Yeah, it is strange that they're like, they're saying, okay, we're going to conquer you. And the only way that you could prevent us from doing that is with this submarine. So we need you to stop making that submarine immediately. Yeah. And that appears to be true. They're not lying. So,
1: okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, they are a an isolated totalitarian uh, society, so maybe they just don't know how to interact with the, uh, with the world at large they, anymore. Yeah. Not great
0: at, at uh, negotiating or diplomacy. Yeah. Oh, sorry. One last thing is they say, uh, if, if you don't surrender to the Mu empire immediately, our God Munda will bring destruction down upon your heads. I know we've been saying both, uh, Monda and munda with an A or an U. It's been spelled both ways.
1: Alright. So balls in your court service world. How are you gonna respond?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So we this the film has been screened for this large gathering of, of political and military bigwigs, and they review the film and discuss how to respond. They're saying things like, Do you think the Mu Empire really intends to take over the world? I think it's all a big fake, etc. So they argue about it. But one thing I love is in this scene. The two photographers are still there, and they're, like, dominating the conversation about what to do. <laughs> it's one of those classic cases of, I mean, I guess there are a lot of movies like this, but, like, why is this person uh, still allowed to be part of the decision-making process here?
1: Yeah, yeah. Especially these are just photographers who just who earlier were chasing around a stranger trying to see if she wanted to become a model.
0: Well, anyway, from here, it segues into, uh, into showing us a bunch of attacks by the Mu Empire on the, the world of the surface. But, but first, it shows us a newspaper headline that is translated in the subtitles as Film Threatens Nations. Nice. Uh, but it says there's an emergency meeting at the U.N. Oh, how are we going to deal with the problem? And, and then we see ships out in the water being attacked by submarines. Uh, we learn through newspaper headlines that the Mu Empire has attacked and destroyed the cities of Venice and Hong Kong. Uh, and then uh, in a minute, there is a conflict with a submarine. And this is a very weird scene. We, uh, actually, Rob, do you want to describe the red Satan scene?
1: Yeah, so yeah, we're introduced to a submarine that is known as the Red Satan and I know that sounds exciting uh, and it's bringing all sorts of fantastic images to your mind, but we're shown this submarine and it just looks like a submarine. It's a, yeah. it's a nice submarine. It's a, a like like all the toy submarines in this movie, it's very well executed. Uh it's, it's water and models it's kind of like flames and models and pictures. You know, if the scale is wrong, if they don't know what they're doing, things can really look like uh, like like toys on fire and toys in the bathtub. And you don't really get a toy submarine in the bathtub feel for most of this picture. I feel like they did a really good job. That being said the Red Satan is basically a red shirt submarine because uh, the, the surface nations, they send it out to follow the Moo submarine and find its base. But in pursuing the Moo vessel, it travels too deep and the pressure crushes it. And uh, this scene too is, is, uh, is, is pulled off with models and it looks really good. Uh, you, you see the pressure crush this thing like a tin can.
0: Yeah, I like that. Oh, but, but so the big question is, whose submarine is this? Like the crew appears to be from their accents a combination of american french and maybe russian too
1: yeah i don't know a, a united nations submarine i'm not sure i
0: mean i don't as far as i know there's no such thing as like a an attack submarine with an international crew that belongs to no nation maybe there is i don't know but uh, like this isn't an exploratory scientific vessel or something this is right. clearly a this military is clearly a submarine. War submarine yeah yeah
1: well, you know, these are changing times. These are challenging times, so uh, you know, the surface world is having to to try new things out.
0: Yeah, and it would fit with the themes of the movie about international cooperation and mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, the, the the good of humanity as a whole superseding the the narrow uh, nationalistic interest. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
2: Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic. And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
4: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins Time for you to start paying some bills.
2: All
1: right, so at this point, we actually have toy submarines in this, this movie, but we need more toy submarines, so our right. characters have to go out and find them.
0: Right, so at this point, the movie is propelled to the next stage where, okay, finally we've assembled this huge cast of characters, and they've all been introduced so that they can end up traveling to the mysterious island where Captain Jingucci has been hiding ever since the war, which, again, he basically hasn't given up on. Um And so how we actually get there is we meet the, do you remember the creepy guy who Makoto says has been following her around?
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Well, it turns out this guy works for commander Jinguchi for, for the captain. Uh, And he has been with this guy on his island base for a long time, but I guess he's been sent back to Tokyo to watch over his daughter or wait, was that the reason I actually didn't make a note of this? I don't remember exactly why he says the reason he came back. I think that's it. But when they, they start interrogating him, they find out, okay, he can take us to to Jinguji's island. And he's very cagey about where it is. Like, he won't just say, but he will lead them there by boat. So, our cast of characters are swooshed away to the island of Jinguji, where he, as the documentary film by the Mu Empire suggested, he has, in fact, been building a new submarine that is the ultimate weapon. Not only can the submarine fight underwater, it can fly in the air and it has a drill allowing it to travel through rock and not to be pedantic because (laughs) uh, like the submarine can fly and I'm not bothered by the fact that it can fly. That's great. Somehow I was a little bit bothered by the fact that the drill submarine, like it has a subterranean function to Mm. go back to something we've talked about in a couple of episodes. Uh, it, It has a drill bit. But the drill bit is narrower in diameter
1: than the sub itself. Yeah, that that wouldn't quite work, would it?
0: No, and not only that, the submarine also has a sail. You know, the part that <laughs> sticks out at the top. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah.
1: Well, we do see. I think we see a scene where that that uh, that part of the the vessel can retract. Uh but yeah. Okay. I don't know. That's true. I don't remember if we actually see it retract later on when this thing sails through solid rock. So when we get to the
0: island, the characters finally meet the uh, the, the commander who's been built up so much, Captain Jinguchi. And uh, he and Kasumi, his old friend, are reunited. He and his daughter, are uh, they sort of meet each other for the first time. I guess she was three when he left. Um, but it's a sort of bittersweet reunion because it turns out he is not very interested in helping them out with their problem. They're like, hey, we're here on behalf of the entire world. Uh, we're being threatened by the Mu Empire. We've got to do something about it. They, so they want to get him to join in with the rest of humanity and use his super sub to protect it. But Jinguji will not budge. He, he, is, he is a hard man and he is stubborn and he's just still overwhelmed with nationalistic pride. The only thing he wants to use this submarine for is to restore the Japanese empire after its defeat.
1: And again, I like this because it's. You could compare this to various, say, James Bond films. Like, yeah. what if you had to seek out the super villain with his super weapon, but not to stop him, but to say, "Hey, that's a nice super weapon you got there. Uh, might you help us defeat another threat with it?" Yeah, I would. This is kind of like if there was a James Bond villain
0: and james bond's mission was to go to that guy and say hey i know you wanted to use the your heat ray against whatever you know the enemy of your country is but actually we're being invaded by aliens and we need it for that
1: yeah specter only you can save us <laughs> uh don't don't you want to do the right thing here and the question is will he come through in the end i think you
0: can you can guess yeah you know, we will get a happy ending jinguji will be won back over by the, uh, by the appeals of his da- for his daughter's love. Uh, because you know, like, they have an argument where he's like, you know, you don't understand. I have duty. I have, I have patriotism. I, I have responsibilities to uphold. And she, she's just like not having it. She's like, you, you know, I, I didn't expect you to be like this and I hate you. And that clearly cuts him to the core. And he eventually comes around in the end and says, yes, he will stick up for humanity against the moo. But there are a bunch of other things to talk about along the way because eventually we get some uh, some more conflict with the Moo Empire itself, such as meeting the Mu Empress and the, the excellent High Priest of the Moo Empire. Oh yes, <laughs> uh, oh man, I love this guy's uh, whole hair situation. He's great. The Moo Empress also has a great hair situation. She has uh, like 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 candy red hair, um, and uh, always she always looks really mad.
1: Yeah, she has kind of a yeah, like a moody pop goddess uh look to her. Uh, if a moody pop goddess was in a like a sort of biblical epic of the 1960s. Yeah. A lot of folks standing around and they I did find it interesting that the uh the the ethnic makeup of the uh, the people of Mu, it's um it's fairly diverse, much like our scenes of the people of Earth. Uh, uh you know, the various political uh uh, uh, you know groups, the different nations coming together and trying to decide what to do.
0: Yeah, I think I read that they reasoned that because Mu is actually gigantic, it's like a continent under the Pacific, that it is a, a massive multi-ethnic continent that I mm-hmm. guess they have banded together in common purpose to destroy all the land lovers. Yes. <laughs> so they've un- overcome their differences.
1: Yeah, yeah. Why why can't we? I mean well they've they've overcome their differences But they just want to conquer the world. So they're they're not an example we should aspire to, uh, exactly. But but still, we have to stop them. Now, there is a great plot line I
0: I really liked where uh, Makoto and one of the photographers is kidnapped and taken to the Mu Empire by a double-crossing double agent. Can you guess who the double agent among the main cast is?
1: It's chin strap, of
0: course. Of course. It w- he was wearing sunglasses inside all the time. Yep. <laughs> of course it was going to be him.
1: Yeah, yeah. Plus he's got that great gravelly voice.
0: Yeah, and there's a there's a really good scene where uh, they, they're trying to, he, you know, he's like, you're going to the Moo Empress, and they try to struggle with him. But he can do a thing where he, like, makes their their head flash with, like, an overexposed
1: camera effect, and then they just pass out. Mm-hmm. It's that, that body heat which by the way you think they would have picked up on that right if he's a if he's a moo operative how do they keep from steaming all over the place
0: yeah that's a good question maybe they can maybe they only steam on command
1: hmm or they have, they're constantly eating ice cream to <laughs> constantly <laughs> have an ice pop or something <laughs> so makoto
0: and susumu are kidnapped by the reporter uh and i think the re- the reporter or some other double agent somebody plants a bomb in the in the hangar where uh jinguji's super uh, super sub is captain and you think, oh, wow, that's that's it for Earth. But actually, the super sub survives the bomb attack. And I think it's the fact that Makoto has been kidnapped that sort of finally breaks through Jinguji's shell. And he's like, okay, I will help. I will help now.
1: There is just a lot of plot going on in this. I feel like this, yeah. this should have been a television series or a board game or something.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like you really could have stretched this out uh, because this is actually a – type of plot i really enjoy which has been done in some other science fiction works where like a sort of outside or alien force threatens earth as a whole and especially uh undercuts our ability to defend ourselves by exploiting uh national divisions and exploiting divisions within earth to keep us squabbling with each other and not banding together to fight them
1: yeah, I mean, that this is one of the things that made uh, Game of Thrones so enjoyable. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, ba- that's basically what's going on there. And it's always something we can relate to uh, as a, an international community, as an inter- as the international viewers can look at this and be like, yeah, wh- why can't we work together towards these bigger problems? Uh, why are we wasting all of this energy uh, on uh, on strife amongst ourselves?
0: Yeah, it's always easy for some narrow concern to seem more pressing at the moment. Mm-hmm.
1: So, I mean, it's a
0: great type of story. Other sci-fi things have done it well. And uh, I think this, yeah, you, you could totally have stretched out this, uh, the, the idea of Atragon over a whole series uh, where, you know, the more of the politics comes into play and, and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, ultimately in the end, we need to have some submarine fights and some monster attacks. So that is what we're going to get. So we see the Mu Empire attacking. We know they've already destroyed the cities of Venice and Hong Kong, and now we see them attacking uh, within Japan itself.
1: Yeah, so in this we get into the like the last third of the picture, which is just constant submarine battles. We finally see uh, Manda or Munda released. I really like that scene, by the way, where they they basically throw open a door and they're like, "Behold, Munda!" and you just see like a wall of scales there at first, which I really like. Yeah,
0: well, I I think they they do that when they're telling the prisoners from Earth that they're going to be sacrificed to Munda if. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if something doesn't happen if Jinguji doesn't turn over the submarine or something.
1: Yeah, I, I like this this uh, uncertainty about the monster. Is it is it just a monster? Is it like a bioweapon or is it like or is it a god? You know, they 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 speak of it as if it is their god.
0: Yes, but eventually what happens is the heroes are able to kidnap the Empress of Mu and take mm-hmm. her to the submarine. Uh, and so she's, she's there and, uh, there's a scene where they try to negotiate with her. They're like, Hey, just, you know, tell your, tell your monsters, tell your people to surrender and and we can end this. And she is not having it. She's like, no, no, it is victory
1: or death. Yeah. She's like, you can kill me. They'll just keep coming because that's what they've been told to do.
0: So, uh, because he believes he has no other choice. Captain Jinguji is like, okay, I've got to sabotage their technology. So he activates the drill. The great mm. tr- oh well actually first he has to fight Munda, um, which they do with the freeze ray and yeah. and you know so th- this thing is not dead it's frozen it can come back in another
1: movie that's right and 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 does to a certain extent uh, we do get a, a nice sequence there where uh, where Munda or Munda wraps itself around uh, the submarine. Uh, mm-hmm. which, of course, is great because it's such a, a Jules Verne-esque moment in the picture. And I've seen that there have been a number—I'm not sure if they're model kits or, or maybe high-end model kits or like high-end uh, collectibles, but you can see, I see that there are various uh, statues, at least, of this uh, interaction between uh, the monster and the submarine. Right. But uh,
0: So after this fight, uh, the submarine drills into the technology at the core of the Mu Empire— Shuts down their ability to wage war, but it also causes this cataclysmic explosion that destroys the palace. And they so they escape to the surface in the submarine. The Mu Empress is still with them, and I thought there was an interesting scene right at the end, as like things are exploding in the water. I guess the palace is still blowing up, and they she just swims away into the fire, and they yeah. let her go.
1: They're like they they like she wants to die in her own empire or something like that. They like let her go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that was, a good, that was that was a, a nice moment, I guess. Uh, but also, when when Moo is exploding there, it really does look apocalyptic on the surface. Like, yeah, all these like billowing, like dark reddish clouds of smoke ascending into the the atmosphere, and I think this this can't be good for 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 the surface world entirely. I mean, they had to defeat Moo, I guess, but I wonder what the ramifications of this are. Yeah. I guess we didn't talk much about, but there there are
0: extensive shots earlier when the mu is, uh, when the Moo empire is attacking Japan of like these strange uh, bombing, like guided bomb devices that come up out of a volcano and yeah, uh, yeah. stuff. yeah yeah I, di- I didn't quite get exactly what those were supposed to be, but uh, but it oh was in cool. vi-
1: it looked great and via archive footage from another motion picture, it's shown that the mu also have satellites in space, which. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I thought that kind of um, undercut the idea of an undersea kingdom uh, reaching (laughs) up into the surface world, but fair enough. Um, There's, Oh, and they also have the moose submarine, which uh, one of the details I liked about that is that they have a deck cannon that's shaped like a dragon that shoots laser beams.
0: Yes. Well, wait, I actually had a question. Yeah. The laser beams... so that was a cannon on the submarine. It wasn't actually
1: supposed to be Munda himself. I don't think so. When it, when I okay. first saw it, I thought that's what it was. I was like, "Oh, it looks like here's here's the monster." But then I think we see that cannon again after the monster's been frozen on the bottom of the ocean. Okay. All right. That makes sense. But it is hard to tell, especially in a in a, in a you know, pictures like this. Okay, I
0: think that's all I've got on Atragon.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's Atragon. There's a lot there. Um, I, I I would struggle to say that it's must see. Um, it is it, it is an interesting picture. It's interesting in what it tried to achieve. Um, it, it has some some creative ideas, some creative plot elements. Um, if you if you happen to to, it, it, I think it would be a fun one to put on in the background. Uh, if you were having some sort of a, a get together or whatnot, um, the trailer is really nice. And uh, if you want to watch it as well, well, you can do what we did and get, find a digital rental of it. Uh, I think we got ours through Prime, but I, I believe I noticed some other places had it as well that you could at least watch as part of some sort of a package or, or by trying the streaming service or another. You can also get it on DVD from Tokyo Shock. And uh, there was also a two-part 1995 anime follow-up, Super Etrigan, which uh, I don't know much about other than it appears to have uh, the submarine and the dragon in it again. Not sure if it's a se- full-on sequel or just kind of a reimagining of the same plot, but hey, maybe somebody out there is familiar with it and can chime in. All right. All right, so we, there we are. We're going to go ahead and close it out, uh, but hey, we invite uh, everyone out there to share your thoughts on Atragon about any of the various kaiju movies uh, that we have discussed here. We'll remind you that we're primarily a science podcast with core episodes that publish in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But on Fridays, we put aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film here on Weird House Cinema. Um... I blog about uh, these movies on um, samudamusic.com. Also, we do have a Letterboxed account. That's uh, L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D. If you're not familiar with this website, it's like a sort of social media site just about films. And uh, if you want to look us up there, uh, our username is just Weird House. I tried to put in Weird House Cinema, but that's too many characters. I would have to do Weird House Cinema or something, and that, that just doesn't work. Yeah.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
2: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio.
3: at work.